My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Garth Mullins. Canada is in the midst of an overdose crisis so severe that it has been identified by Statistics Canada as a leading factor in the first instance in almost 40 years that life expectancy in this country has not increased from one year to the next. Despite this, public conversations about how to respond to the crisis not only rarely center the voices of the people who are most directly impacted, that is, drug users themselves, they often don't include them at all. Today's guest identifies the current crisis as the latest phase in a drug war that has been going on in Canada for over a century. In 1908, the federal government passed the first piece of legislation criminalizing certain substances and certain practices. This, in turn, transformed entire categories of people into criminals overnight. This initial legislation was passed as part of a moment of racist social panic among white elites in Vancouver, associating the presence of East Asian people with the consumption of opium. In the decades since, the harmful impacts of the drug war have continued to fall disproportionately on people who are some combination of racialized, indigenous, and poor. These impacts include heightened surveillance, the associated harassment and violence from police, and the harms of arrest and incarceration themselves. They also include a whole spectrum of indirect consequences, such as harsh social stigma, barriers to accessing employment, healthcare, and other services, and vastly increased risks from unsafe drug supplies and from the circumstances in which people are forced to consume them. All of these harms and all of these barriers that are put in drug users' lives to a great extent via state action mean more suffering and more death. The first arrest to occur in Canada under drug war legislation took place in the downtown east side neighborhood of Vancouver over a century ago. The downtown east side continues to be a crucial epicenter not only of the drug war, not only of the constant deaths from the current overdose crisis, but of organized resistance by drug users and their allies. Such organizing first became visible in Vancouver during an earlier and somewhat more localized overdose crisis in the 1990s. It included drug users coming together to support each other, to engage in policy advocacy around things like harm reduction and decriminalization, to found organizations, and to organize safe consumption sites. In today's overdose crisis, such activities continue across the country. Garth Mullins is a longtime activist and organizer who's been involved in many different movements. He is a freelance journalist and broadcaster and has won awards for work on CBC Radio. He has also been a drug user for most of his adult life, including injection heroin when he was younger and methadone today, and he is currently a drug user activist. Mullen's most recent work is as the host and executive producer of Crackdown, a podcast that launched in January of 2019. Its focus is, quote, the drug war covered by drug users as war correspondents, end quote, and it is based in the downtown east side. Guided by a team of people with lived experience in the trenches of the drug war, it is a unique initiative. 
Each episode is a top-notch audio documentary that explores the issues with a rare sophistication and depth, and does so in a way that centers those who are directly affected. Episodes so far have focused on things like safe injection sites, the complex issue of blame, and the experiment with decriminalization in Portugal, and future episodes will examine gender in the drug war, the impact of colonization, housing, employment, and much more. One of the key accomplishments of drug user organizing since the 1990s has been to create opportunities for drug users to come together, to break isolation, and to push back against shame and stigma as they fight against the ongoing harms of the drug war. Mullen sees Crackdown as part of this tradition, and part of growing efforts across the country to win not just harm reduction and decriminalization, but a new society which prioritizes justice and human needs. I speak with Mullins about the drug war in Canada, drug user organizing, and the Crackdown podcast. My name is Garth Mullins. I'm the host and executive producer of the Crackdown podcast, which is drug users covering the drug war as war correspondents. I'm an activist from lots of different movements over my life, including the labor movement, and now a drug user activist. I've been an opioid user most of my adult life, injection heroin user way back in the last overdose crisis of the 1990s, and now on methadone, so this is my second overdose crisis. The drug war in Canada has been running, I guess, about 110 or 111 years. It's really a set of policies that make people into criminals who all throughout the rest of human history wouldn't have been. So the government criminalizes certain substances and certain activities and we become illegal. And the response to it is to increase police presence in different communities, to throw people in jail, to lock people up, to destroy people's lives. And it does feel like a war. I mean, a lot of these police forces act like a war. They storm people's houses. They use battering rams to get in. They take prisoners. They have tanks. I mean, the Vancouver police have an armored personnel carrier that looks like a tank. There's a real militarized aspect to it. And then the deaths. The amount of people that have died in my life is amazing. Like half the people I came up with are gone. I tried to count up and I got to about 50 and I had to stop because it's just, it's, it's too much. And so it does feel like a war. And like so many wars, it's also got roots in racism. So if you're black or a person of color or indigenous, you're more likely to have these kind of interactions with law enforcement and the criminal justice system because of the way society is organized. And the origins of the drug war in Canada and the U.S. are in racism. Out here in Vancouver in 1907, there was this group called the Asian Exclusion League, which had a bunch of important big shots in the city of Vancouver in it. They had a big rally out front of City Hall, and that devolved into a riot. People went around, smashed up businesses and everything in Chinatown and Japantown. And then the government did a little attempt to compensate some business owners, and in the process of doing that, became aware of opium and got very scared about that, and so moved to make opium manufacture and possession and everything illegal. And so the 1908 Opium Act was passed out of the ashes of a racist pogrom in Vancouver. So this is where the drug war started. That riot that happened over a century ago, that was right at Maine and Hastings, right at the heart of the downtown east side. And the first arrest for opium was a year after. And it was right there, right behind the Carnegie Center, which is at Maine and Hastings. And that was the center of the overdose crisis of the 1990s. It was a neighborhood that had rates of HIV infection in the 1990s that were the worst in the industrial world. 
because the availability of syringes was restrained by health authorities and governments. So people shared, and so infectious diseases spread. And so it was also the center of resistance. People started organizing there against these policies, distributing new syringes, even though that was illegal, and opening underground safe injection sites in a couple of places before they were ever allowed officially in Canada. It's where the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users was founded, which is you know, a 22-year-old drug user union, an activist group that actively fights back against the drug war and fights for drug users' rights. And it's also uh, the center of where a lot of housing protest and other kinds of activism have happened in the city. So that's why the podcast is based there, because that's where the activism and the resistance are. Tell me about your experience of the drug war and with the organizing and resistance that's happened over the years in Vancouver. Since I was a teenager, I've been a drug user. So I experienced lots of the elements that everybody else experiences. You know, the unavailability of syringes I was talking about that affected me. I couldn't find them. I had to, you know, use the same one for a month at a time and sharpen it on a matchbook. I was in trouble with the police. I've been arrested and put in jail for drugs. I've overdosed. I've, uh, you know, tried to quit. I've gotten the eviction notices. And certainly lots of people have faced it way, way harder than me. But these are the common effects of the drug war on somebody who's using an illegal substance every day. When the demands in the 90s were really coming for, let's have a safe injection site, let's try to do something about this, I was part of that. I attended some meetings, but my life was also really not very stable, so I wasn't able to be at a lot of that stuff. And then over the last five or six years, I've been more active with the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users on various kinds of campaigns, like around people having more dignity and access to drug treatments like methadone and people having access to a safe supply of opioids like heroin so that people don't take stuff that we still have on the street that you don't know the potency, you don't know what's in it, and it can often kill you. I've also been involved in training people in the use of naloxone to reverse overdoses. You know, we all do that. We all reverse overdoses, and we also all train people in how to do it themselves. So the community training ourselves in that skill has been really important and something we've also fought for for a really long time. Back in the day when I first started using, there were no polite words to refer to a drug user. Like the phrase, a person who uses drugs, wasn't around. You were just like a junkie or druggie or whatever like that. There was no place that you could collectively reflect on your experiences and plot strategy for changing your life. There was, you know, Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever, but those are not very political spaces. And the kinds of things you experience, like you would get banned from stores or community centers or places if they thought you looked sketchy or whatever. There's no sense that you had the right to anything. And society had a huge consensus on that. And so the fact that that's changed through activism, like that we come together and have a space where we can talk to each other and exchange experiences and stuff, that has been transformational in my life. Like the ability to understand myself and my situation without deep, deep shame has been definitely a big change for me. So that's how I experienced the drug war was isolation and shame and how I experienced activism was breaking through all that stuff. And I hope that our podcast can help pass that along to other people. How did you decide to do a podcast about this stuff? When I was a kid, I loved radio. My grandfather was a radio repairman and he taught me basic electronics and got me interested in shortwave. So I just listened to radio from all over the world when I was a kid. 
And then when I was a little older, teenager, I started working in community and college radio and had radio shows. And then I have been a freelancer for CBC making radio documentaries. Radio's in the blood, so I hardly experience anything anymore without thinking, ooh, this could be cool if we did a documentary on it or a podcast or something. Also, as a freelance journalist and a writer, I just wasn't able to land the stories the way I wanted to. I was a columnist for Post Media Daily Paper for a time, and I've also written for Vice and the Vancouver Sun, a bunch of papers. But, you know, when you pitch a story that's a little more complicated, that's not just a standard issue drug story, people don't get it. And I had a lot of difficulty doing that. So I started more and more to think we needed to find our own space to tell these kind of stories. And also, I wanted to tell them a little more complicated. My column for Post Media was 400 words. And, you know, in Vice or something, you would get 800 words and you don't really get to bring much collective muscle to thinking about them. So getting together a team of people and a little bit of money so we could pay everybody to participate properly and carve out the space and time to think about and tell stories that are a little more complicated, that was what was pushing me to do it. And tell me about the team. We have an editorial board of eight people, uh, I keep saying that, of seven people now who have been in the mix for years and years. So people who are drug user activists who have a great deep knowledge of, you know, heroin, rock and meth, but also jail and homelessness, that deep knowledge of drug policy, having lobbied ministers and prime ministers and interacted with international dignitaries and presented at academic conferences. So you just have that direct lived experience of the drug war, but also that deep expertise in policy around the table as well. It's really important to have a board that also reflects that everybody doesn't experience the drug war the same way. If you're indigenous, it's different. Colonization has just amped up and kind of wrapped around the overdose crisis. And it's different for women than it is for men. It's different for people who have to go to work every day or for people who are on social assistance, for people who are marginally housed or whatever. So we wanted to gather all those experiences and all those different moments in how our society affects people so that we could get a better view and a more complete view. And the editorial board, they don't just provide advice, they also provide leadership. Like when we go do an episode on a topic that somebody's an expert in, like if we do one on stimulants or on math or something, we'll have that member take a leading production consulting role in helping us make sure we get everything right. At the beginning, I corrected myself and said, we actually have seven. And that's because we lost one of our editorial board members, Sharice Kiwatin, in February. That's one of the realities of the drug war and of criminalization. Every day in Canada, 11 people die from overdose and from the drug war. And some of those people are people we work with every day. What kinds of things did the team need to talk through as you were getting started? I guess one of the first things that we talked about, people said, what the hell is a podcast? And fair question, because some people don't have internet access. So that's one of the first things we thought about is if we can't own a radio station, we'll have to do it podcast. And how will we get it to people who don't have access on the computer? So we play the episodes. We have listening parties and other people do too. They take the episode and they play it out loud and invite people to come by and listen and have a discussion afterwards. We're thinking about other ways to get to people who don't have internet access, like run off a bunch of cassette tapes or CDs or whatever people want. What do we want it to be was our next discussion. And people were like, make it really good, really high production values, be really intentional, make it professional. 
the comments were like, we're so often represented with something that's slipshod, that looks kind of crappy. Like we want to put on our best clothes and go tell the world what's going on. So we took that to heart. We really do try to produce like that. The early meetings, we decided the kind of process we wanted to do too, the kind of journalism we wanted to do was not journalism where we pretended to be objective, where our positionality was really clear. Like there's a war, we're on this side of it. This is what we think. Here's where our expertise is. And we wanted to give ourselves some guidelines. There are things like recognizing the expertise of people who've lived it. Punch up, not punch down. So that means holding the government people to account and lighting a fire under them, but also increasing the solidarity amongst drug users and drug user activists and other social movements and those sort of things. You know, like the kind of perspectives we take towards policing and that sort of thing are inscribed in the consensus that came out from around the table in those meetings. And early on, we also set ourselves the kind of topics that we wanted to cover. And what have you been covering? Our second episode was about methadone and how a lot of people in Canada got switched to a methadone that people have found less effective about five years ago. We think it's one of the drivers of the overdose crisis because, you know, when you get something that's supposed to treat your dependence on a drug and it doesn't, and you go back to that drug, well, of course, that puts people in the bullseye when there's a contaminated drug supply. So people were really insistent that we get to that early. Some of the other things that people wanted to show was our role in these solutions. When we talked about safe injection sites, which we did in episode three, we described how the tradition of starting those up is activism, is civil disobedience. In fact, they're almost always illegal or started illegally first before they're ever kind of given permission and institutionalized. And people also wanted to look to solutions like in Portugal, drugs have been decriminalized. How is that working out? What do drug users in Portugal actually think about that? Not just experts. And is it protective? Will it save people from the worst effects of of the drug war? So we went there and we found that out. People also want us to dig into policing and how certain law enforcement strategies and tactics affect our lives, housing, how people get targeted for eviction if they're drug users. We want to look at gender and how the drug war has certain specific, sometimes deeper and harsher impacts for women colonization, how colonization sort of wraps itself around and is mutually supported by and and makes the overdose crisis worse. And we want to look at other things like what's it like at work? So if you're working in construction or the resource sector where you're not allowed to be on something like methadone or where they piss test you all the time, how do you get by as a drug user? Or also if you're working in an office or if you're working in a Starbucks, if you're working anywhere. And what's the labor movement doing to defend the rights of workers? And we want to look at solutions like what could actually end the overdose crisis. What are the things driving it? And what are the things that could solve it? So it sounds like you and the podcast come from a particular set of politics when it comes to the overdose crisis and the drug war. Lots of that has emerged in what you've said so far, but maybe draw it together a bit more directly for listeners. Harm reduction is like first aid. That's like you show up to the scene of an accident and you help the person not die. So we have fought for harm reduction for a long time, which means a place where you can use drugs, where if you overdose, someone can bring you back. And when we break open that little ampule of Narcan, the little glass cylinder that contains naloxone and draw it up and hit somebody with it, that snap of that glass breaking is something we fought to be able to do. But it's also an admission of failure in some ways too. 
that this is an intervention that we're doing in the last few heartbeats of someone's life. And we need to be way upstream of that. We need policies that don't put people in that dangerous position to begin with. And we need a kind of world that doesn't lock people up for just trying to obtain drugs or being caught with drugs. And Canada is still doing that. You know, Canada is still doing that a lot. So if harm reduction is like showing up to the accident scene with first aid, well, we need to bring people from the first aid to the hospital and get real help. And maybe that would be decriminalization is, is to get real help instead of jail. But the world I look for is one where there's no car accident to begin with, where we've actually created a place where harm reduction and even decriminalization is redundant because there's no police involved. There's no dangerous drugs. And that means that drugs are available that are safe. And right now we have pharmacies everywhere in Canada that have all the drugs that people are doing. There's pharmaceutical versions of just about everything that are known quantities that are safe that are cheap, really cheap, especially if we have a proper pharmacare program, or even better, if we nationalize big pharma, then we can have these things for next to nothing. And then that means also people won't have to be grinding every day to get the money to come up with this. The, the hustle, the endless cycle of hustle to get your drugs will be over. And once people get that kind of stability and control back in their life, then all the creative potential that they have gets to be unlocked because you don't have to spend all your energy. I mean, for me, that's true all over. As soon as I was able to get a prescribed stable opioid, and it happens that methadone works for me, I was able to get out of the endless cycle of hustle and start to use all my time and creativity and energy for much more satisfying and socially redeeming things. So that kind of world where everyone's potential is unlocked instead of chained to a terrible criminalized system is what I look for. And really, I learned that vision from the old, old school. You know, this is just socialism, really. This is the same thing that you want for workers everywhere, is to not be chained to an assembly line where you're making somebody else's product and all your labor is alienated, but where you have more control over your own labor and your own product. And we can collectively organize a world that makes things and does things that are helpful to human beings, not just the bottom line. And that's definitely a far off vision. But revolutionaries make the best reformers because that gives you a bit of a blueprint of what you want to win tomorrow, even if your bigger vision is not going to happen tomorrow. And revolutionaries don't stop when they've won one small reform. They keep pushing. And I think that's what we need to do. So even granting that there's been some amazing organizing happening all across the country in recent years, one of the things that I've always found quite striking is how much more established drug user organizing seems to be in Vancouver compared to most other places in Canada, and how much more impact it seems to have had there on popular consciousness and even on institutions. What's your take on that unevenness? Vancouver had a head start from some places because we had an overdose crisis in the 90s. A lot of places didn't have that. So the material conditions of living in the city actually probably drove us to just organize a little earlier. But social movements wax and wane, right? And we're in some ways not at a high point of organizing in Vancouver. We've just lost so many people and so many leaders in the movement that we're just whiplashed, shock and awed. There's fractures and demobilization and disorientation. And, and it's also, frankly, hard to be thinking about your strategic goals that are off ahead of you when you're just planning that week's memorial, you know, when you're just hanging in there for the day to day. 
So I think that Vancouver isn't necessarily always the head of the rest of the country. And frankly, I think the rest of the country gets sick and tired of the van-splaining of the crisis because we haven't solved it here. I mean, if you go to the downtown east side, it's drug war chaos. It's just police clearing people out every morning. We haven't knocked that one on the head yet. We have a few safe injection sites and a couple of pilot projects to prescribe Dilaudid and one to prescribe prescription heroin to a very small number of people. So we haven't done anything yet that we could rightfully stand and lecture the rest of the country on. So I think that it's like any social movement. There's fits and starts. It's patchy and it's inconsistent. And all social movements I've been involved in are kind of that way for most of the time. And then you get these moments of massive radicalization and upsurge where you really punch through. I've only experienced maybe one or two moments like that in my life. And I think of the big upsurge in anti-capitalist, anti-globalization organizing at the end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s. And we're not in one of those upsurges yet in harm reduction, decriminalization, legalization, and in drug user organizing. And I hope we will be. And if and when we are, I wouldn't be surprised at all if the fire was lit from somewhere not Vancouver. What are the key things that you would want non-drug users, and I guess particularly those who are activists and organizers in other movement contexts, to know about the drug war and about organizing against it? If you're in another movement that's not a drug user movement, you have drug users in your movement for sure. Like I was a anti-globalization organizer and an anti-fascist organizer and like a defend immigrants and refugees against attacks and labor organizer, all kind of things while I was also a drug user. And I just didn't have the space or the confidence to really come out about that stuff in those contexts. So if you're in the, those other movements, make room. There are drug users everywhere, like in your social movement, in your workplace, in your union, in your community center, in your place of worship, probably in your family, in your apartment building. The media stereotype of somebody using in a back alley on the downtown east side is not representative. In fact, the coroner finds most fatal overdoses died at home alone and that, you know, half of the people would have gotten up to have gone to work that morning. What people understand of drug users is maybe not always the full picture. So other movements, you have drug users in them. And then other movements, you also have part of your mandate could be around this. Because, you know, I already talked about the way colonization and race and gender play into this. So the incarceration of people of color is one of the outcomes of the drug war, like an intended outcome. It's, you know, the new Jim Crow in the United States. And this is something that has got to be at the heart of all movements for social justice right now. Labor movements have to realize this is something that's causing people to get fired from work when they reach out for help. They can't disclose. They got to have collective agreements that cover proper treatment, not just a place where you get scolded by a counselor, but like something real that could actually help. So it's a labor movement issue too. So I guess social movements can have a check-in with themselves and say, do we have a part of this? And then the last thing is, is that people in those movements probably have people in their families that are like this. And so there's opportunities to just do the old school solidarity, you know, to just make the links with the other movements. And we all work on this together. You have been listening to my interview with organizer, journalist, and broadcaster, Garth Mullins. To learn more about his work, go to garthmullins.com, and to learn more about the Crackdown podcast, go to crackdownpod.com.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.